0: Have you ever heard the phrase, or maybe even used the phrase, we have two ears, but only one mouth that we may hear more and speak less? Anybody ever use that? Did you realize that that's uh, attributed to a Greek philosopher from 500 years before Jesus? Zeno of Aaliyah, you can add that to your uh, meaningless factoid list, right? But uh, uh, he was known for expressing truth via paradoxes. What's interesting, though, is about 400 years prior to Zeno, the wise King Solomon uh, wrote this. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. Well, our passage this morning in James chapter one begins with something similar. So I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of James. If you've got a paper Bible, you'd be turning. If you have a digital Bible, you'd be searching, but find it, all right? Find James chapter one. I'm gonna put some of this up on the screen, but I'm not gonna leave it up there the whole morning. So, and the reason for that is there's some things here this morning that I I think you're gonna wanna underline or circle or, or make a note of, highlight somehow. James chapter one, verse 19 reads thus, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Well, certainly this statement is uh, proverbial. It's, and we learned a couple weeks ago that James writes in a kind of a proverbial sort of way. In fact, he's known as the Proverbs of the New Testament. But as we'll see here in just a little bit this morning, there's much more to this than just a proverb. Uh, There's more here that first meets the eye, or in this case, the ear as well. But before we go any further, it's important, I'd like to pause and just take a look at, at the context. So let's back up a verse to the last verse from last week, verse 18. Of his own will, that is God... He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. When James wrote this, there were no chapter divisions. There were no verse markings. Rather, this is a letter that he's uh, writing, and clearly he is continuing a thought. In our passage this morning, which begins at verse 19, he's clearly continuing a thought that he's already uh, made known in verse 18. There's a second point of context that I want to call to your attention, and that is, in, in, in order to really interpret today's passage adequately, we've got to remember that James is writing to believers in Jesus. He's writing to men and women who have professed faith in Jesus. If you remember back in verse 2 of this chapter, he refers to them as my brothers. In verse 3, he talks about the testing of your faith, right? He's talking to people of faith, brothers and sisters. Verse 16, my beloved brothers again. Uh, Here in verse 18, he's speaking of first fruits of his creatures, God's creatures. And then, of course, in verse 19, he uses the phrase my dear brothers again. There's another point of context that I think is important to help us understand James, and this isn't just for today's passage, but it'll help us through the rest of this series on this letter or book of James and that is that James is writing before Paul had written any of his letters so it's not really fair to try to interpret James by using Paul's letters now he would have known Paul he is um, writing prior to any of Paul's writings, so he's not intimately familiar with, with Paul's writings. So, James must be read within the, uh, against the backdrop of the Old Testament, and probably some teachings of his half-brother, Jesus, but not the Apostle Paul, and that'll be important. You'll see, that you'll see why in just a few minutes. In fact, it's interesting to me, and we'll see this today, I think, James, in a sense, in this passage and in the rest of the book, I think he often reflects on things he heard his older half-brother, Jesus, talk about. Specifically today, I wonder if maybe he doesn't have in mind the, uh, the parable of the sower. And you'll see why as we get into the text. In verse 18, then, James has just referenced this transformative power that we have, because of the word of truth, we have been brought forth. God has brought us forth. We're kind of a first fruits of his creations. And so now James is going to go on and he's going to elaborate on that. Let's look at the text and let me read it for you. And I'll, I'll put the, uh, the verses up on the screen as we read through the text. James 1, 19 through 27. Know this, my beloved brothers, that let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, but then he goes away and at once forgets what he was like. Verse 25, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we've heard your word read, now we ask through the power of your Holy Spirit that we might get a better understanding of what these words mean. And not just what they mean mentally, although we do ask that you would open up our our minds to understand your word, but we want to go farther, we want to go deeper. We, We ask that your word would actually be Uh, implanted and then watered in our hearts that we would receive your word this morning so that we might in fact respond to your word obediently. Lord, we offer this, uh, again, this time up to you. We offer this teaching up to you. We ask that you would guide us through the power of your Holy Spirit, and we pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Brothers and sisters, there are so many ways to unpack these nine verses, okay? I um, Earlier this week, uh, Pastor Scott, who's directly below me, right, well, actually, he's, he's right over here, right below us right now, He's he is preaching on this same passage, okay? In fact, that sermon that he's preaching is also online. I would commend that to your viewing. It's really, really good. We've talked all week. We met with... Uh, Pastor John from Gladstone, Pastor Travis from Wilsonville. We had uh, different perspectives, different insights, questions, and so forth. Uh, Scott's message, he's he's talking right now on how, uh, out of this passage, God's Word shapes how we listen, how we look, and even how we live. Well, I'm going to take a slightly different tack this morning. I simply want to emphasize the centrality of God's Word and the importance of receiving his word, and and how we might go about doing that this morning. So here's my central point, or as we like to refer to it, the big idea. Here's the big idea. If you remember nothing else from this morning, please make note of this, and it's very simple. And I'll give credit to Travis. This, This was his idea, and I love it. Receive the word of God, then act accordingly. Very straightforward, right, very simple. That's how James writes. There's, there's a little bit more behind that, and I'll give you some other things that you can ponder, but that's the big idea. The theme of this section, verses 19 through 27, is rather obvious. Those who have experienced the new birth by means of God's Word, verse 18, which we've already looked at, must receive or accept that Word, and that'll be found in verse 21, by doing the Word. We receive it by doing it, and that's the latter portion of this section. In other words, the Word of God is the central focus of this passage of Scripture, these verses. In fact, five times in these nine verses, the Word of God is mentioned. Verse 18, 21, 22, 23, and then in verse 25, it's referred to as the perfect law. I'm reminded, and I I can't help but think that James was reminded and was writing from that perspective of the parable of the sower. Do you remember that? The parable of the sower, sower, some call it the soils, some call it the seed. It's found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In Luke chapter 8, Jesus, in response to the questions from his disciples, what was that? What were you talking about? He says, now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. And if you're familiar with that parable, you know that it's all about the seed. It's all about the seed. It's the seed that does the germination. It's the seed that produces the fruit, depending on what kind of soil that it, it, that is found in. But it, it's not the soil that produces the fruit. It's the seed that produces the fruit. And Jesus is saying the seed is the Word of God. So I think James has that in mind. I, I, I have to wonder if... You know, we, we do know from the scriptures that James and his siblings were not that excited about their older brother. In fact, they thought he was crazy at times, and they were not followers of him. But by the time James writes this letter, shortly after Pentecost, he's, he's on board, okay? Some things have changed in his life as a result of that. But I can't help but think that maybe he was on the outskirts. Maybe he was standing off to the side when Jesus was in that boat and delivering that parable as he was talking to the people on the shore and looking over and and watching a man sow seeds. Again, that's that's Tim's imagination, but I think that's kind of what's going on here. Well, this morning I want to give you what I would call three primary ways from this passage that we can receive God's Word. Here's the first one. We receive the Word intentionally. For those of you that know me, you know that that's a favorite word of mine, intentionality. We receive the word intentionally. Let's read again the uh, first three verses, 19 through 21. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls." Verse 19 is not only proverbial, it, it very possibly might even be a, a parenthesis, it may be parenthetical, in that it seems, 19 and 20 seem to be kind of a, kind of a transition. Uh, James has just made this point in verse 18 that it's the Word of God that causes us to be His creatures, and He's going to basically give a description of what that looks like, but it seems like he just throws this out here to grab their attention, so to speak. Maybe it's for shock value, I don't know. But in in, in rapid fire, he says, be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. I also think, though, that he has in the back of his mind that he's also referencing how we receive the word, right? Well, normally we look at this and we think, well, because maybe we're more influenced by a, a kind of a greeting card approach to our spirituality. we see we see these three quick bursts and think well, that that looks great in a greeting card, right? Um, but also what what I think James is saying here is that we've got to be quick to hear God's word. We've got to be maybe slow to speak his word, thinking like we have all the answers. I know that's a, a that's something that teachers and preachers of God's word, We've got to be willing to, to slowly sit and simmer with God's Word before we get up and start sharing platitudes about God's Word. So, quick to hear, slow to speak, and this slow to anger, this isn't just some sort of volatile, quick-temper response to somebody offending you. No, this is this word that he's using here speaks of deep-seated resentment uh, or, or kind of building... Um, uh, frustration and even rage. And I, I wonder sometimes if we really do sit with God's Word, if we're if we're uh, sl- quick to hear His Word and slow to speak, I wonder if sometimes His Word is so convicting that it causes us to, uh, to kind of get a little frustrated there. So there's more going on here than just, uh, just a proverb. Verse 20, interestingly, says, that the anger of man doesn't produce the righteousness of God anyways. This is where in, in understanding what James is saying, we can't really rely on Paul. He's not talking about the kind of righteousness that Paul talks about in the book of Romans, being declared righteous uh, by God because of the work of Jesus Christ. That's not what he's talking about. He's simply talking about doing what God requires of his people, producing that kind of um, response and that kind of lifestyle that God requires of his people. And once again, Jesus talks about that in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, in the Beatitudes. And I can't help but think if James was maybe there, kind of suspicious of his older brother, but, but listening and wondering what was this all about. James's point here in verse 20 is that human anger does not produce the kind of behavior that God expects and that God is, is pleased with. In other words, we can't produce the righteousness of God by means of anger. Did you all hear that? Particularly those of you that are on social media, and I'm on social media, I don't have a Facebook account, but I'm on Instagram and Twitter. It seems like the the mantra of the day is create as much righteousness as you can through as as much anger as you can come up with, right? And And James is saying, no, that doesn't work. It doesn't work at all. Let's move into verse 21. There's a therefore at the beginning of verse 21. And whenever you see that in the New Testament, especially stop and ask, what's it there for? What's that word, therefore? Because it seems to be connected. In fact, if 19 and 20 are somewhat parenthetical and proverbial, then really, I think verse 21 connects right back to verse 18. Because of the work of God, because we are His creatures, because of the word of truth that He has put into our hearts, therefore, as a result of that, in other words, as a result of something that God has has already done, uh, we respond accordingly. And the response is found in verse 21. And verse 21 is really the heart and soul of this passage. This is is where this whole idea, my big idea for today, comes from. You'll notice that it says clearly in the middle of verse 21, to receive, to receive the implanted word. Yet we do that receiving while at the same time, he starts with, putting away something. we He says, therefore, put away. Therefore, because of the result of your position in Christ, because of the Word of God, put away. Um, the term there is, is to cast off or to strip away, as if you would uh, take off maybe a, a bunch of dirty clothes and just kind of throw them over in the corner or throw them into the laundry basket. James then uses a very strong word, this word filthiness. It's a uh, Gosh, it's, it's so, so strong. It reminds us just how offensive and how detestable sin really is. A synonym might be grime, because it gets everywhere. And it's a grime that's not only on the outside, but it's a grime that gets in on the inside. In fact, interestingly enough, the root for this word filthiness, when used in a medical sense in the Greek language it referred to the grime that gets in your ears, wax in the ears. And what does that do? If you've got a buildup of wax and grime in your ears, are you able to hear, right? And you're going, excuse me, what'd you just say? <laughs> and so there's, there's so much here that, that James is communicating just through the simple use of a word. I, I remember one Thanksgiving dinner as a child my parents had built a house in South Central Los Angeles uh, with, their, with their own hands. It was a wonderful house to grow up in. Uh, but I remember this, clearly, this Thanksgiving dinner, um, my mom said, there's something wrong with the, the, the sewer. There's, there's something backing up the sink. It's, we had company coming over, it was gonna be a mess. And so my dad, he had built this place, he knew everything about it, so he's out there. And it was awful. I can still <laughs> smell it. He's, he's out there trying to run a snake through the sewer line, trying to unclog this drain. It was an absolute, absolute mess. Well, can you imagine, would it have made sense if my dad just came in from that? I mean, he was covered head to toe, grime, and he stunk. If he just came in and sat down at the Thanksgiving dinner table and received the beautiful meal that my mom had prepared in the front, in, in, in the presence of guests and family, that doesn't make sense, right? That doesn't, no, he stripped that away. He took off all those clothes, he showered again and put on new clean clothes in order to receive that meal and I and, and I see that part that's part of what I think James is saying here is to put away all filthiness. And then to drive the point home even harder, he calls it rampant wickedness. And he uses again a term there that speaks of excessive abundance. Uh, there's just there's more, more of it than, than what we can handle. As we're, as we're putting away that kind of stuff, then we are able intentionally to receive. Now, I love this word. and this is, this is the verb in the passage that really controls the entire passage. It, it's a word that means to literally to take a hold of by the hand, and to draw it close. In fact, it's used of Jesus in Mark chapter 9, when he took a child, put him in the midst of these people, and he took him in his arms, and he said to those gathered around, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Four times he uses this exact same word. Maybe a better term would be welcome. Do we we welcome the Word of God? Do we welcome it? Is it a a friend? Is it a welcome friend? I think that's what James is saying here. He's saying, you need to welcome the Word of God into your life. Now, once again, James is writing to believers in Jesus who they've already been granted new life in Jesus. Uh, They've already received Jesus as their Savior and Lord. Here, he's not instructing Um, non-believers how to come to faith in Jesus, he's talking to believers in Jesus already. And he's saying to them, look, you need to receive this implanted word, allowing it to have its way. It's a welcome presence in your life. This implanted word conjures up a couple of ideas from the Old Testament, and and I know a couple in the room at least will really, really appreciate this. Think of the two prophets, Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Jeremiah chapter 31, there's this new covenant that is predicted by Jeremiah that's coming. Now, we're on the other side of that new covenant. That new covenant is in Jesus. But this new covenant is going to be such that God, he says, I will put my law within them. and In fact, I will write it on their hearts. I think this is what James has in mind when he talks about the implanted word this inscribed word on the heart. Or what about Ezekiel? Ezekiel 36, God, God through the prophet Ezekiel says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you and I'm gonna remove that heart of stone and do what? I'm Gonna replace it, I'm gonna replace it. I'm gonna implant a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. folks." That was an incredibly radical concept for these two prophets in the Old Testament to be talking about. We, we lose sight of that because again, we're on the other side of the cross and maybe we're more familiar with God's word. But for the, the, the original audience of Jeremiah and then later Ezekiel, to hear those things, it's like shazam, wow. It'd be like mind blowing what they're talking about. Radical, radical ideas, this implanted word. Notice also in verse 21, the attitude that we must have as we receive or welcome God's word, it's meekness. Also translated humility, gentleness of spirit. In fact, it's one of the fruit of the spirit listed by Paul in Galatians five. It's that quality of a man or a woman whose feelings, whose emotions and impulses are under perfect control. In the context of this verse though, in this passage, It also means what I would call teachability, a readiness to not only welcome, receive here, but a readiness to submit. It's like what the psalmist says in Psalm 119, incline my heart, God, to love your word. So, number one, we receive the word intentionally. A second idea in this passage found in the next uh, few verses, next four verses, verses 22 to 20, Five is to receive the word obediently. Let me read it again. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, He will be blessed in his doing. We receive the word obediently. Essentially, to receive the word of God, James says, is to obey the word of God. It's to walk your talk. Too often we talk our walk. James is flipping that and saying, no, we must walk our talk. We claim to know Jesus, then do it. James is reminding uh, his audience here that that which you have heard in the holy place, in the place of worship, must now be lived out in the marketplace. And that applies to us today as well. What we're hearing here this morning through singing the, the reading of God's Word, through the teaching of His Word, it's incumbent upon us as we receive the Word to now walk out of here and put it into practice, to receive it obediently. James's concern here is that these believers would not just what I call sit and soak. They wouldn't just sit and soak in another Bible study, or listening to another sermon uh, podcast, or another uh, theological treatise delivered, uh, maybe, maybe through a video, but that in fact they live transformed lives. It, folks, it's great to be involved in multiple opportunities to study God's word and I love that we we have that hunger to be in God's word but if that's the focus of our spirituality then we're missing the point here James is saying don't just continue to heap new information onto yourself without putting it into practice because we receive the word as we obey the word you can say that well God accepts you as you are right so But you also got to recognize that He doesn't leave you as you are. There's an expectation of change. There's an expectation of growth. There's an expectation of action. And if we don't do that, we're deceiving ourselves. Uh, Again, strong term there at the end of verse 22. We're reckoning wrongly about ourselves. We're cheating ourselves by a false perception here. We're deluding ourselves. And within this context of this passage, we're blinded to reality if, if we just hear and don't respond. So what brings us back? What brings us back to reality? Well, the Word of God does. And James uses a wonderful illustration. I don't have to come up with an illustration. He uses a wonderful illustration how the, the Word of God is like a mirror. And when you look at a mirror, and in those days they would not have been looking at a glass mirror, probably some sort of polished metal, and maybe not as flat as we're used to, and so they'd have to kind of peer at it, look intently. I, I love the, the ESV translation here because it's implicit within this, this the text is that you're looking carefully, uh, intently, trying to, trying to see what you, what you really do look like. But if you walk away from that and forget about what you just saw, what good is that? Essentially is what James is saying. The Word of God is like a mirror, and it brings us back to how things really are. And we talk a lot about confessing our sins, about agreeing with God, agreeing with what He has said about our sin. That's what confession is, to say the same thing about our sin that God says. Well, how do we know what God says? Right here. Right here. It's not, it's not well, I think God means this. No, it's, it's right here. <laughs> okay. And, and again, as I'm sharing this with you, I'm holding this up as a mirror to Tim as well right? In fact, this, uh, this last week, just pouring over this passage, it's like, whew, there's, there's, I'm leaving a lot on the cutting room floor here. There's, there's a lot more here, that a lot more work that went on uh, between the Holy Spirit and me, because God's Word is like a mirror. Well, what is this perfect law? Verse 25, the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty. What is that perfect law? What's he referring to there? Once again, within the context of James' letter, I think it's safe to say that it's the Old Testament. But it's the Old Testament filtered through the life and the teachings of his half-brother, Jesus. We have the benefit of even being further down the road down here and can look back and can filter all of the Old Testament even through all of the New Testament as well. And so, this perfect law, and by the way, don't let anyone tell you that the Old Testament was all about doom and gloom and just, justice and judgment. There is a lot of that for sure. But notice, James observed, it's the law of liberty. His understanding of the Old Testament is that it would set people free. And, of course, his understanding of what he heard his, his brother teaching... Uh, really added to that, that idea. Notice the promise of a blessing there at the end of verse 25. That reminds me of, uh, and I think it reminded Luke, uh, excuse me, of James, of Luke 11:28, uh, where Jesus, in response to a statement that was made from someone in the crowd about blessed is the mother who gave birth to you, he says, Jesus himself said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and do what? And keep it. So, you see, James here is just simply reflecting what he's heard Jesus teaching. So, we receive the word intentionally, and we receive the word obediently. Thirdly, we receive the word expectantly. Now, here's another way of stating that. What may we expect when we receive the word? That's what I mean by expectantly. What may we expect when we receive God's word? I'll tell you one thing, I don't want this description at the end of verse 26, I don't want that to be the description of my worship of God, of my uh, spiritual experience, of my religion. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is what? It's worthless, it's worthless, it's futile, it's devoid of force, it's fruitless, it has no purpose. You want that? I don't want that. Three things he gives here in this in this last uh, little section, these last two verses. He 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 uh, he raises I think three expectations, and I'm going to give them to you in the form of three questions. First one is this: It's very simple. It's in verse 26. Do we bridle our tongue? You know, a bridle is what control. I'm not a horseman. My wife is more of a horse person than I am, but. Uh, but a bridle, my understanding is, a bridle is what helps to control that very large animal that you're sitting on, right? And that's the question of the hour, is do we bridle our tongue? Am I self-controlled in my speech? James is going to go into detail on this. In fact, in chapter 3, he's going to give, he's going to devote 12 verses to talk specifically about the tongue, and then he's going to touch on it again in chapter 4. So. These, these expectations that we have that God has when we receive the word are going to be reflected later on as we go through the book of James. A second question is, or second expectation is, are we with or beside the helpless? Notice verse 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, and then he gives a definition. His definition starts with to visit orphans and widows in the their affliction. The disadvantaged, uh, widows, orphans specifically, in their distress, in their affliction, to be with them, in in a sense to be beside them. Brothers, sisters, it's not enough to merely be angry on their behalf. I see a lot of that on social media. I see a lot of that on Twitter. People being angry on behalf of those who are disadvantaged and disenfranchised. Th- that's okay, I suppose, except we saw earlier, anger doesn't really bring about the righteousness of God, but that's not the point that's being made here. James is saying, no, I'm not asking you to, to, uh, to get angry on their behalf. Uh, rather, I'm asking you to visit them. I'm asking you to be with them in the midst of their affliction. Psalm 68, five says this, I love this. Father of the fatherless, and protector of widows, is God in His holy habitation. Who's our model for this? Who would have modeled this uh, for James? Well, it's Jesus, right? It's Jesus. The Apostle John says in John chapter 1, verse 14, that Jesus was known as the Word, and that the Word became flesh, and what? Dwelt among us, or literally pitched His tent, tabernacled among us. And then, of course, Paul elaborates on that in Philippians chapter 2 when he says, "...let each of you uh, look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, to be hung on to. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant." Jesus came to this earth. He lived among us. In fact, He lived just like us, except for sin. And then He died for us. And then He was raised again, so that we might live that same life. He is our ultimate model here. You know, in this passage, James is not uh, calling us out to be spokespersons for the disenfranchised, for, the, for those who are hurting. He's calling us instead to be friends. Many of you know that Deb and I invested the first, gosh, many years, nine years of, of our early marriage uh, doing that very thing. Just called by God to move to Mississippi, and we bought a house and moved into a, what had been a kind of a lower middle working class neighborhood, but it was quickly becoming a ghetto. And we went there to work with a gentleman named John Perkins, a pastor from Mississippi, and we went there initially for two years and stayed nine. It was an amazing time. Had all three of our children born down there and started raising them in that community. Uh, and while we were there living in that community during those nine years, that working class neighborhood became a ghetto. Uh, Deb, Deb will tell you the story. Many times at night, um, I don't know where I was, off speaking somewhere, and gunfire would start up in the neighborhood and she'd get out of bed and grab the kids, little kiddos out of the crib and we'd, they'd hit the floor because we didn't know where those, where those bullets were going to be going, right? But well, we, were, we were there. John Perkins um, had and still has a, a, uh, several tenets of his kind of philosophy of ministry, but the first one and the foremost one is relocation. He calls it relocation. Once again, Jesus is the best model for that. Jesus relocated from His throne in glory, to come and live among us, live just like us. Perkins used to say, if you're going to minister to the disenfranchised, to the poor, to the needy, you got to do it in their space. You got to be with them, right? You can't live in the comfort of the suburbs and drive across the railroad, down there, it's across the railroad tracks, in the end of that community of need. You just can't do that. It doesn't make sense. The needs of that community have to become your needs, and you can only do that by living there. A third quick question, and I, they're singing downstairs already, so I better get, I better get going here. Um, is is this coupled with that emphasis? He goes on to say, the last phrase of verse twenty-seven, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Am I avoiding the stain of worldliness to keep oneself unstained from the world? Verse twenty-seven displays i think two sides of the same coin and let me give it to you in the form of an equation pure and undefiled religion as defined by james is this it equals personal incarnational ministry to those in need plus personal morality i've grown up in churches where you're either on in this camp over here incarnational ministry or you're in this camp over here, personal morality. It's not an either or. Brothers and sisters, it is a both and. It is helping the most helpless of the world while at the same, same time staying separate from the sin of the world. The evidence of new birth is a new life, practiced both in public as well as in private. It's a spirituality that's integrated into real life, not segregated into separate compartments. Well, James is about to to launch into some very um, specific, very concrete ways in the next chapters uh, how we are to live. But you know what? We're incapable of responding to his teaching that we're going to see in the next several weeks, to his exhortations, apart from the power of God's Holy Spirit who resides within us, and apart from the implanted word which he has entrusted to us, and which we must receive Back to that parable of the sower, Jesus goes on in Luke 8.15 to say that as for that, the seed in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the Word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. So, let's receive the Word. Let's welcome the Word, and let's do it intentionally, obediently, and expectantly. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the clear, resounding, simple, yet deep truth of your word. May your word truly take root in our hearts in order to bear fruit for your glory. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.